Welcome to Joint Heirs in Granada Hills. This is our Bible study podcast in partnership with the Joint Heirs Fellowship Group at Grace Community Church. So really quickly, um, for those of you that haven't been able to be here for all of our studies in the book of Titus, I just want to go through a review of what we've been through. Okay, so we are, we are coming to the tail end of uh, our study in Titus. We are now in chapter 3, which is the very last chapter of the book. But really quickly, I just want to review where we've been. Uh, the book of Titus is a very practical book, very practical, and it uh, really addresses how we are to live as Christians. It's not a highly theological book. As a matter of fact, there's only just a few verses that are uh, pretty theological in nature. The rest of them are just very practical living. This is how you're supposed to live in light of your new identity in Christ. In chapter 1, uh, we are introduced to Paul as he is uh, ministering to young Titus. Titus is uh, pastoring a church in the island of Crete. And so he introduces himself and, and says... Uh, to Titus that he needs to appoint sound leaders in the church in Crete. And so that's what chapter 1 is all about. It's about the qualifications for godly pastors and godly leaders. And then the second half of chapter 1 is talking about rebellious men, empty deceivers, false teachers that are on the island of Crete that he's warning Titus against. And then you go to chapter 2, and chapter 2 is all about how we are to live amongst the church how older men are to treat and, and raise up younger men and encourage them, how older women are to do the same thing for younger women, how to encourage them to love their wives and raise their children. Then we talked about slaves and how they are to work for the uh, honor and glory of God. And then now we come into chapter 3. Tonight we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Um, and here's where we really sort of turn a corner. Uh, in in the, our study in Titus. Now we are going from how we live amongst believers in the church, and tonight we're going to talk about how do we live in the world? How do we live in the world? So to start things off, what I want to do is I just want to read uh, chapter 3, and I want to read 1 through 7, but we're only going to focus on verses 1 and 2 tonight. So let's read together Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It says this, Remind them... To be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, as I said just a little bit ago, we see here 
that we have turned a corner from how we are to live amongst the church, how older men are encouraging younger men, how older women are encouraging younger women, etc. And now in chapter 3, we start talking about how we need to be subjects to rulers and authorities, how we need to be giving consideration for all men, not just men and women in the church. So what this is really talking about is after we are saved, this is how we are to live in the world. And I think this is really, really important because this is really where the rubber meets the road. I think if we're all honest, the way in which we live in the world is really where we can tend to be the most hypocritical, right? I mean, it's easy to come to a group like this as believers and and we are nice, we're kind, we're considerate, uh, we're, we're peaceable, we are patient with one another, but then as soon as we go out into the world, we get on the freeway or we get stuck in a line somewhere, that's when we get angry. That's when we get impatient. Or when we are with our family members that are unbelievers, that's when we tend to get a little bit hostile and, and maybe not so kind to one another. So really, in the world, this is where the rubber meets the road for a Christian. This is where we really show who we are as believers. And I think this is really important because as believers, we are always supposed to be shining our light in a dark world, right? Uh, As believers, we are always supposed to be representative of God's kingdom out in the world. And this has always been. This is not brand new. So when Paul is talking to Titus, this is not a new command for him to be telling Titus, Hey, remind the people that this is how they're supposed to live in the world. As a matter of fact, if you see right there in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, remind them. Remind them. That assumes that what I am telling them or what I want you to tell them is not new material. This is something that has always been. If we are God's people, we need to be representative of, representatives of God in the world. And I want to really briefly, I want to do a quick survey of Scripture to show that, okay? So um, we're we're going to turn to some places and and other places. I'll just mention it. But first, just starting in the Old Testament, being a representative of God. This is what we're talking about, being a representative of God in the world. We can see this in the Old Testament. So when God created man in the first few chapters of Genesis, it says that God created man in finished sentence in what in his image god created man in his image and then do you remember what was some of the first commands that god gave to man in the garden he said be fruitful and multiply his desire was that they would spread over the whole face of the earth right so if god creates man in his image Man is somewhat a representation of God's glory. And then he tells man to spread over the earth. What is God essentially doing? He's telling man, go spread my glory. Go spread my glory over the face of the earth. Be representatives of me over the whole globe. Okay? So that's one example in Genesis. Um, Let's turn to, really quickly, let's turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Genesis and then Exodus. Uh, you can keep your thumb here on Titus because we'll be, we'll be coming back here. So we go to Exodus 
19, we see another example where God is telling his people to be my representatives in the world. Exodus 19, let's begin in verse 6. Does somebody want to read a verse, sorry, verse 4. Somebody want to be, uh, read verse 4 through 6 for me? Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Good. So God is talking to Israel, and he's telling them that they need to keep his covenant and obey his voice. And it says, and you will be my possession among all the people. Israel, you are going to be my special nation. And then in verse 6, it says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, what do priests do? What were the priests supposed to do? Anybody? Priests were representatives of God to God's people, right? They were a mediator. And so he's telling all of Israel, you are to be a kingdom of priests. Now, this is figurative language. Essentially, what he's saying is, is you, Israel, as a nation, are to represent me to the rest of the world. You are to be my representatives. Okay, so now let's come to the New Testament here. Um, let's go to Matthew chapter 5. This will be a very familiar portion to us. Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And we'll begin in verse 13. Does somebody want to read for me Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Yeah, yeah, 14 through 16. Set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before <laughs> others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Great. So Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is, is being very clear that you, as believers, as my followers, you are the salt of the whole earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine so that people would see it and give glory to God. So as we as believers are living in the world, we are to be shining, that Jesus says, so that people would see what we're doing and give glory to God. They see our good works and they say, there's something different about that individual. That person is a follower of God. He's a representative of God and, and they glorify God in that way. So that's one example. Let's go to the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm making you flip pages really early on. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, and I'll read this. Um, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. I think this is really fascinating that... Um, actually, no, sorry. Let me, let me go to Philippians 2. So, so Paul says to the Ephesians, they need to walk as children of the light. 
Um, Philippians chapter 2 says something very, very similar. Philippians chapter 2, which is the very next book to the right. Philippians 2 verses 14 uh, and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that you are the light of the world. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that we are children of the light. And here in Philippians, he says uh, we appear as lights in the world. It's really fascinating to me because John, in the book of John, Jesus says, I am the light. He says, while I'm in the world, I am the light. Then Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He's buried. He's resurrected. He ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes upon his people. That's us now. It's the apostles then, and it's us now. And now it says, you are children of the light. So Jesus was light of the world while he was in the world. And now that we have the Holy Spirit within us, we are the lights of the world. And we need to walk and be representatives of God, representatives of the light. Really fascinating to me. Um, let's go to, really quickly, to the book of Colossians. It's the next book over. Colossians, um, somebody read verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Someone read Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Sure. Sorry. Walking wisdom to what outside is, making the best use of the time. Yeah, great. Yeah, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, talking about how we are to live in the world. And uh, we'll skip over uh, the examples in uh, in First Peter, uh, but First Peter says something very similarly, uh, specifically talking to wives of unbelieving husbands, that they need to conduct themselves in godliness so as representatives of God so that they would influence their, their husbands. So the reason why I did this really brief survey from you know Genesis all the way to here we are in Colossians, is to show us that God's people have always been expected to live as his representatives, always, in the world, in the midst of a dark world. It's never acceptable for a Christian to go out into the world and not be a representative of God. I want you to really think about that as you are going out into work, going out into school, going out into day-to-day life, going out to the grocery store, going to the bank, you are God's representative if you call yourself a Christian. And I know that adds pressure to us, but rightfully so. Christ has bought us, and we need to be faithful representatives of him. And and that's really what Titus is about here as we get into chapter 3. Really, it's it's teaching us how we can do this. Titus chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 really is sharing with us five actions of how we can be God's representatives in a dark world. How we can be light in the world. That's what we're going to talk about today, Titus chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. So there's five actions. And as we go through this, you're going to see this is very easy to understand. There's not a whole lot of... Uh, language that's going to trip us up here. I think what's going to be really difficult for us to get is how do we apply this to our life? How do we be obedient to what it says? Okay, so Titus 3 verse 1 says, remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities. So that's the first action. 
Action number one, how can we be a representative of God in the dark world? How can we be light in, the, in a dark world? How do we live as Christians in the world? Number one, submit yourself. Submit yourself. It says be subject to rulers and to authorities. So this verb here in this section, be subject to rulers, um, it means to subject oneself or to be subordinate. Um, it is submission with recognition of an ordered structure. Subject yourself means that you need to submit with a recognition of where you are in life, what your place is in life. And what is our place in relation to rulers and authorities? Really, what's our relationship to the government? That's essentially what's being spoken about here. That's what Paul is talking about uh, for believers in Crete. I mean, they weren't, you know, sovereign citizens on this island. They had rulers, they had kings, they had emperors that they needed to obey, the Roman emperor. And he's telling them, tell them to submit. Remind them that they need to submit with recognition of an ordered structure. So, as believers, do we submit to just the government? No, we submit to God and the government. How does that structure work? How does how do... How does our relationship work in relation to submitting to the government and submitting to God? Well, we need to recognize that God is obviously the ultimate authority in our life. What God says goes for us. And what God says don't do, we don't do. But God has also put government over us. It's God who establishes the government and then us. So... I want to show us um, some proof texts of that. So um, let's just do this. Someone, we'll stay here in Titus, but somebody turn to Romans 13 for me. Who can read uh, just a few verses in Romans for me? Jessica, could you go to Romans chapter 13 and read verse 1 and 2? And then can somebody else go to the uh, uh, parallel passage of this, 1 Peter chapter 2? Somebody else read that for me? Michael, yeah. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, and then you'll read verse 13 through 17. So, Jessica, go ahead whenever you're ready. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Yeah, so God, our government has been instituted by God. And if we resist the government, we don't submit to them. We are resisting what God has put in place. So God puts the government in place, and if we resist the government, then we are resisting what God has done. Okay? Uh, Michael, could you read uh, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17? Uh, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Yeah, great. So he's saying that we need to live in a way that's honoring to God, live in a way that is pleasing to his will, and the way in which we do that is submit to the governing authorities. That's the very first thing that's uh, mentioned there. So again, God establishes government. The government 
rules over us. We need to submit ourselves to them, and we need to. And if we don't do that, then we are disobeying God. And if we're honest, this is hard for us, right? Especially as Americans, you know, we we have uh, amendments in place, we have a constitution in place that if the government starts to do what we don't like, then we can rise up against it. I mean, that's how our country was was formed. Um, but we really shouldn't have a problem with this command to submit ourselves. I want you to think about this. Think about how the Bible constantly describes God's people. There's, there's, the Bible describes us in many different ways. And every single description that is given of us assumes a role of submission. Let me explain. So, Christ, God, is called Master. Who are we? Slaves. We are submissive, submissive to our master. That's how the Bible describes us, describes us as slaves. Christ is called the king of kings. If he's the king, we are citizens in his kingdom. The Bible describes Christ as the bridegroom. Who are we? The church. The bride. A position of submission. The Bible calls God our Father, and we are His children. The Bible calls God and Christ in John chapter 10 a shepherd, and we are the sheep. The Bible describes Jesus as a good teacher, and we are His disciples. All throughout Scripture, we see this description of us as believers, and all those descriptions assume a role of submission. So why is it a problem with us as citizens in the world to submit that's who we are in our new spiritual nature. In our new spiritual nature in Christ, we are submissive. We are not rebellious. We are not quarrelsome. We're not trying to rise up and overthrow anything. We are submissive. So the first thing that we need to do uh, that Paul tells Titus to remind the believers in Crete, remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities. Okay, so that's the first thing. That's the first thing that we need to do um, as God's representatives in a dark world, submit ourselves. Number two, number two, we need to be obedient. It says right there, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. Again, this is, this is not easy to understand, or not difficult to understand. Be obedient means to obey, to do what we are asked. The, the verb tense means an ongoing intentional obedience. We don't get to just pick and choose what we want to obey and what we can disobey. We don't get to choose, well, this is hard to obey, so I'm not going to do it. This is easier. This is comfortable, so I'm going to do that over here. No, believers need to be seen as good, law-abiding citizens, not rebels, not rebels. Um, I don't know if all of you know this. Some of you may know this, but prior to Rachel and I coming out here to California, I used to be a police officer in Ohio, and part of my training was training for what is called sovereign citizens. Have you guys ever heard of sovereign citizens? Anyone? No one has heard of sovereign citizens. Okay, Julie has heard of sovereign citizens. Um, so, oh, Cassidy, sorry. Um, so sovereign citizens are individuals that essentially claim that they have no rules, no authority over them. There's no government over them that they submit themselves to or subject themselves to. 
Um, and obviously, as a police officer, they, some of them can be very, very dangerous. You would pull somebody over that would maybe be driving down the road with no license plate. And you pull over and, and you say, I recognize that your vehicle doesn't have a license plate. Can I see your driver's license? And they would say, I don't need a driver's license. I, your rules don't apply to me. I'm a sovereign citizen. And they would have fake documentation with seals and a bunch of legal jargon all over it, claiming how I'm a free citizen. I'm, I'm not, they would say this literally, I'm not, I'm not driving on the roadway, I'm traveling. <laughs> they would just say weird things like that. Um, okay, so behavior like that, I say all this to say this, behavior like that is, is not acceptable for believers. We don't, we don't act that way. There's laws that we have to abide by. This is why we have valid driver's license. This is why we pay taxes. Uh, this is why we tr- try our best to obey the speed limits. Okay, we need to obey the speed limits. Okay, I'm reverting back to my, my old police officer ways. We are not trying to cheat the system. That's not what believers do. We obey. We're not rebels. We're not cheapskates. We're not trying to skate behind the rules, and we're not trying to bend them or twist them a little bit way to our favor. We need to be obedient to the laws of our governing authorities. So, immediately what happens when we come to passages like this, Titus 3, verse 1, where it says, remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities and be obedient. We as sinful human beings, and maybe us in our American DNA, will immediately think, well, when do I don't have to obey? When do I not have to be subject? When, when do we cross the line? Okay, um, First, let me, let me say this. There is scripture that we can turn to that will give us a clear answer. Um, I'll just flip there really quickly. You don't have to. In the book of Acts, uh, I'm sure you guys have heard of this. When, when the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel in the book of Acts and they were told to stop preaching the gospel, we have guys like Peter and John, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 19 says, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. Essentially, he's saying that we need to obey God before we obey the commandments of man. And similarly, in chapter 5, verse 29, it says, uh, Peter speaking again, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Again, as we talk about that hierarchy, we, God is our ultimate authority. And when God tells us to do something, we must do it. And when God tells us to abstain from something, we must abstain from it. And the government can't tell us to do otherwise. And that's essentially what's being said here in Acts. So I just want to say that to answer the question, but I don't want us to lose focus. Okay? When we come to passages like Titus 3.1 and we think... Well, when do I not have to obey? When do I not have to be subject to governing authorities? We are missing the point of the passage. Imagine you as a parent tell your child, you need to go to your room and you need to clean up all your toys and you have 15 minutes to do it. And your child says, okay, what toys do I not need to pick up? And can I take a half hour? They're missing the point. You're giving them a command. You're telling them that they need to obey and their question is totally missing the object of, of your command to them. So when we come to this passage, let us not do the same thing. Paul is telling us 
as representatives of God, we must be obedient. We must be subject to authorities. So when we leave tonight, I want that to be at the front of our mind, not when we don't have to be obedient, when we don't have to be subject to the authorities, okay? So we are going to be representatives of God's kingdom in a dark world. Number one, we need to submit ourselves. Number two, we need to be obedient. And now we get to number three, we need to serve others. We need to serve others. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Be ready for every good deed. Um, again, this is very vague. We're not given a whole lot of specifics of what that means. I mean, we can understand, okay, we've got to be ready for good works, but what kind of good works? It doesn't specifically say. Um, the verb is to be, and the adjective is ready. So it's basically saying you need to always be in a state of readiness. Be in a state of readiness for good deeds. Um, it's very similar to when Jesus tells his disciples, you need to be ready for when I return. Be ready for when I return. Always be in a state of readiness for the Lord's return. Uh, it's the same uh, verbs here. Um, so we need to always be in a state of readiness for good deeds. Um, and it says for every good deed. So there's nothing specifically mentioned here, but the fact that it says every good deed assumes that there's more than one. It's all, all kinds. It's a variety of, of good things. Um, so uh, really quickly, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 5. We were there just a little bit ago. Matthew chapter 5, again, we're at the Sermon on the Mount. And we read this verse earlier, but I'll read it again. So Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us that we need to be the salt of the earth. He's telling us that we need to, to be the light of the world. And then verse 16, look what it says. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. This is the same word in Titus. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. So let your light shine so that they would see your good works. So you see the connection here. Works is the light. You see that connection? Let your light shine so that they see your works. So our good deeds that we do, that is the light that Jesus is talking about. So that's why it says that we need to be ready for every good deed. We need to serve one another because that's how we let our light shine according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. But it's not just that. It's not just doing good things, but it's also the attitude behind it. You do understand this, friends, that if you do good things, but you have the wrong attitude behind it, that that's sinful, Right? That's not good. Just because you give to charity or just because you go help your neighbor across the street or just because you go help your friend along the side of the road who has a flat tire, those things in and of themselves, those aren't good, especially if you don't have the right attitude behind it. Like, I'm going to give to charity because, well, then I could say I give to charity. You know, I can, I can tell people that I gave $10,000 to the Children Hunger Fund this past year. That's not good. That's not a, a good motive. That's what the Pharisees would do. The Pharisees would do good things to be seen by other people. 
they would blast their trumpets and they, as they were going out and doing good things, they would blast their trumpets and ring bells as they were dropping money into the, into the bins. Like, look at how much we're giving. Or look at us standing here in the corner praying. Look at how pious we are. The, those aren't good when we have the wrong motives. So let us remember that, that if we are to be ready for good deeds, make sure that we have the right attitude in us. And what is that attitude supposed to be? For the glory of God alone. Scripture tells us that we need to do everything, whether we eat or drink or sleep, do everything for the glory of God. I want to do good to my neighbor. I want to do good to my friend. I want to do good for charity because I want to bring glory and honor to God as his representative because this is what he would want me to do. It's not about me. It's not about personal recognition. It's not about just simply checking something off my list. It's because I want to bring glory and honor to God. So I say to you guys, you know, get ready. Go give money to charity. Help build houses. Help rebuild churches. Help your neighbors across the street. You know, do yard work for them. Answer that call from that friend that's in, uh, in desperate need of help. Uh, you know, go to that family member of yours that's an unbeliever, that's a pain, and is just constantly nagging you for things, and help them. Be good. Be ready for every good deed because that's how you are a representative of God's goodness in the midst of an unbelieving world. And remember, don't just do this for believers. It's easy to do it for people that are like-minded to you. It's easy to do it for people that you have so much in common with. It's not easy to be kind and good to people that are mean, that are aggressive, that are evil, that are unthankful, that are extremely selfish. But that's how we are representatives of God to those people. Okay, so remember that. So we need to submit ourselves. We need to be obedient. We need to be ready for every good deed to serve others. That's number three. And number four, we need to speak honorably. Speak honorably. This is at the very beginning of verse two. Remind them to malign no one. Malign no one. The word for malign uh, means to speak in a disrespectful way that demeans or defames. Um, It means to revile. Paul is telling Titus to remind the believers not to speak disrespectfully of people, not to defame them, not to uh, demoralize them. And here's the, the kicker. It says no one. Not a single person should you talk about in that way. That means the president. Don't talk about your president that way. Don't talk about celebrities and malign them and defame them and speak dishonorably of them. Don't speak about that way to you, about your family members. Don't gossip in your family about your brother or sister who's lost and just doing horrible, wretched things. Don't speak that way about those people. It says malign no one. There's no exception. If you are going to be God's representatives in a dark world, then you need to watch the way you speak about people. Watch the way that you speak about them. And, and I think that demands humility, right? We need, to, we need to remind ourselves continually how wretched and evil and wicked we are before we ever talk bad about somebody else. We're no better. So malign no one. This is how our Lord lived. This is how Christ lived. Let's uh, turn to 1 Peter. 
Actually, you know what? Sorry. Stay here on Titus. Somebody else. One person. Want to go to 1 Peter for me? 1 Peter chapter 2. Yeah, Kate, go ahead. 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, sorry, my writing is smudged here. I think it's uh, verse 21, yeah. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. If I knew where it was, I would have went there. Oh, not a problem, Michael. Okay, chapter 2, 21 through 23? Yeah. Okay. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. <laughs> No sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when Christ was facing his death, and he's arrested, and he is being tried, and liars are, are bringing all sorts of false accusations against him, and they're making fun of him, blasphemous things, and spitting on him and maligning him. It says he did none of that in return. And it says he is our example, that we are not to do these things at all. Even if people are speaking bad against us, we are not to return evil for evil. Um, Similarly, Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person it says your speech needs to always be seasoned with salt not sometimes not when it's convenient not when people are speaking nicely of you it says your speech always needs to be seasoned with salt and that obviously is just figurative language for purity salt is a purifying agent it's, uh, and it says season with salt and grace. Season with grace as salt. Sorry. Um, also, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear it. Paul says to the Ephesians, Don't let a single unwholesome word come out of your mouth, Only let things come out of your mouth that are edifying and encouraging to other people. Um, And there's another text in Ecclesiastes. If you want to write down Ecclesiastes 10.12, you can look that up later. Ecclesiastes 10.12. So it doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter what they've done. doesn't matter whether or not they're your family members or they're just wicked people. If we are to represent Christ well in the world, we need to learn how to control our tongue. We need to control what we say about people. And we shouldn't malign anybody. We should only speak things that are encouraging and edifying and gracious and good. And that demands that we have an attitude of humility. Okay? We need to watch what we say about others. So, recap again. How are we to live as God's representatives in the world? We need to submit ourselves to governing authorities. We need to be obedient. We need to serve other people, whether they deserve it or not. We need to speak honorably of people, not to malign anybody, no matter who they are, what they've done. We need to speak kindly as God's representative. And fifth, 
And finally, we need to be peaceful. We need to be peaceful. Titus 3, verse 2, malign no one to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So this, uh, this command here is in be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. First, we have really the command. What are we to do? We're supposed to be peaceable and gentle. Be peaceable and gentle. God's children are peaceful. God's children are peaceful. Okay, again, the Sermon on the Mount. I, I think of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God, sons of God. So God's children are peacemakers. We're peaceful. Again, we're not rebellious. We're not quarrelsome. We're not argumentative. We're not trying to pick fights. Uh, this is in relation to the qualifications of an elder or pastor. They're not to be pugnacious, constantly quarreling and fighting with people. That's not how God's people are supposed to behave. So we need to be peaceable. And then the second part of the verse says, showing every consideration for all men. That's telling us how. Okay, how do we be peaceable? How do we be gentle? It's by showing every consideration for all men. So essentially what this is saying is that you need to put others before yourself. Quit thinking so highly of yourself. Quit prioritizing your own needs. Quit prioritizing you winning an argument. It doesn't matter whether or not you win an argument or not. That's silly. You need to put others before yourself. You don't always have to be first in life. Uh, let's go to, uh, man, I'm making you guys all go all over the place. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Verse 18. Somebody read that for me. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, yeah, as far as it depends upon you. Listen, sometimes you're, you're going to get in quarrels. You're going to get in tiffs with people. People are going to be upset with you. But this verse is telling us as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with people. You better not be the ones that are starting the quarrels. You better not be the ones starting the arguments. You better not be the one that's starting the tiff. It's, it's going to happen in a sinful world. But it, as far as it depends upon you, don't be the cause of that. Don't be the cause of that. Similarly, you don't need to turn there. But uh, Psalm 34, if you just want to write it down, I'll read it to you. Psalm 34, uh, verse 11 says, Come, you children, listen to me. This is God speaking to his people. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil. We just talked about that. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. That's malign no one. That's our fourth point. Depart from evil. Do good. Verse 14. Seek peace and pursue it. If you want to live wise that this is saying, if you, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, then don't speak evil. Don't speak deceit. And seek peace. And pursue it. So, 
I know this is like a really quick fly through of these verses. Again, they're not really difficult to understand. Um, it's just applying them to our life. As God's representatives in a dark world, we need to make sure that we are doing these things. That's what Paul is telling Titus to remind the believers of. It's not about just how you conduct yourselves in the church. It's not about how you just conduct yourself in the family of God. They need to be mindful of how they are conducting themselves in the world and remind them that they need to be subject to the governing authorities, that they need to um, be obedient citizens, that they need to seek to do good things, that they need to watch the things that they're saying, and that they need to be peaceful. We're not trying to make this big, giant, rebellious movement where we're overthrowing people, we're going at war, we're speaking evil things against others. We need to be mindful of these things. Now, I think most importantly, we need to understand this. We are not saved because of these things. Just because you may leave this place and you may be an obedient citizen, subjects yourselves to authority, you abide by the laws, you aren't trying to cheat the system, you are peaceful, you are kind, and you don't malign anyone, please understand that that's how we're supposed to live as Christ's representatives, but that does not, that doesn't buy us salvation. We're not saved because we do these things. We are saved from an evil and perverse generation for these things. We are only saved because of Christ. When we stand at the gates of heaven, if, if Christ were standing right there, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? Our answer cannot be, well, it's because I'm obedient to the authorities and I, I abide by the traffic laws and I paid money to charity. I did all these good works. Um, I helped my neighbor out. I don't malign anybody. That's not going to get us into heaven. The only thing that's going to get us into heaven is by him purchasing us, by him forgiving us of our sins and him giving his righteousness to us. That's the only way that we can get in. We are saved from a dark generation for good works. We're not saved by our good works. And that's really getting into our next lesson. But, I mean, just really briefly, look at the following verses. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, envy, uh, or sorry, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating, hating one another, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds. It's the same word. Be ready for every good deed. But here in this verse, but you're not saved by those things. You're not saved on the basis of your deeds. But according to his mercy, by the washing and the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So let that be a motivation to do good in our community. God has saved us. God has forgiven us of our sins. God has saved us from an eternal damnation and hell. This is why we want to be God's representatives in the world because we are so grateful that he has done that and we want to warn people and tell them of the wrath to come unless they repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. Okay? So, 
We need to submit ourselves to rulers and authorities. We need to be obedient. We need to serve other people. We need to speak honorably, and we need to be at peace. That's how we can be God's representatives in the midst of a dark, unbelieving world. And I think that's very important for our culture today. Any questions or comments? Um, any, anything? It's, yeah, Brian. Yeah, it was, that was great. Thank you. me when you were talking about um, the past over in Romans as far as it's up to you to be at peace with everyone and it's sometimes that we are the ones who initiate you know um, you know you're saying don't be the cause of an argument or a quarrel and maybe think sometimes it's equally as important even maybe more important if you are the cause be the first one to create peace in that relationship mm-hmm. just in that kind of because I think a lot of times being at peace with someone I mean obviously it says as far as it's up to you but sometimes you know we might do something stupid and I don't know you guys I occasionally do stupid things more just occasionally like <laughs> yeah. but you sometimes might do that but being at peace means that you're the first one to go and to reconcile and I, I learned I think probably through marriage more and more the importance of that that the command to be at peace might mean that if you wrong your brother or your sister, that you're then taking it on yourself to be at peace by confessing and uh, seeking forgiveness for it. I think that is, you know, that characterizes believers in a way that, that you know, the world is not characterized. No one in the world norm- normally is going to go humble themselves, confess, and seek peace that way. So I think it's just another, to your point, it's another way to be a light in the world, is mm-hmm. to, to be the one who's confessing, acknowledging your sin against that person, and seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. That's a good word, Brian. It doesn't necessarily mean that the individual is going to forgive us, um, but you're right. As far as it depends upon us, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to confess my sin and my wrongdoing to that person, and I'm going to ask that they forgive me. And if they don't, then us not being at peace is not because of me. It's because them choosing not to forgive me or to hold a grudge or whatnot. But as far as it depends upon me, I want to try and be at peace. So you're right. That's a very good reminder. Yeah, Michael. Well, uh, so that makes, that was great, by the way, to learn how to be a representative of God. Maybe you said it, and I'm, I'm starting to come up with it. Up. I can't talk right now. What does it mean to, like, Really, how do you get into the kingdom of heaven? I, I, I'm not saying that there's specifically one way and like you just need to follow this rule and you'll get in, but like, is it just to simply accept Christ as your savior and live his way? I, I just don't, it's still yeah. foggy with me. Yeah, first and foremost, we need to recognize who God is and who we are. You know, God is a holy and righteous God. In him, there is no sin whatsoever. And he cannot be in relationship with sin at all, not even a little bit. And so the problem is, is that you and I and everybody here in this room, we are sinners. Uh, The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sometimes people will say, well, then in order for me to get right with God, I just need to do a lot of right things. I need to do good things. That's sort of what we were talking about here, and that's why I'm had that reminder at the end. 
good deeds do not get us right with God because the Bible says that our righteous deeds are as filthy rags to him. We are so marred by sin. We are so evil that no matter what we do, we can never get to God's standard. Uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, we were referencing that a few times, you shall be perfect for your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard, is perfection. And so the scary thing is, is we're not perfect. I can't be perfect. So we need someone who is perfect. And that perfection is Christ. Jesus Christ is perfect. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned, not a sinful thought, not a sinful word, not a sinful deed. And then what he did was he laid down his life as a penalty for us. So we deserved to die for our sins. The wages of sin is death. We deserve to die. But he said, I'm going to pay the fine for them. Essentially, think of it as a courtroom. We're standing before God, and we are guilty because of all of our sins. And Christ comes and stands in between us and God the Father. And he says, Father, I'm going to pay their fine for them. And so he takes the penalty of God's sin on the cross, and he absorbs all of our sin. And when we put our faith and trust in that sacrifice, then his righteousness is given to us. So how do we get into the kingdom of God? It's through Christ's righteousness and his alone. So what we need to do is we need to cry out to God, recognizing that we are sinful human beings that fall short of his glory each and every day, and we need to ask him to forgive us of our sins. And we need to put our faith and trust in Christ that he truly has taken our sins upon himself and given his righteousness to us and that he's totally forgiven, of, of, forgiven us of our sins, past, present, and future. And then throughout the rest of our life, we need to seek to live a way that's honoring and pleasing to him. It's not just like I prayed a prayer one time and therefore I'm saved and I don't have to do anything else. It's not like I'm baptized one time and therefore I'm good, I don't have to do anything else. It's actually living life in recognition that I've been bought with the blood of Christ. And, and I, I don't deserve it. If it wasn't for him, I would be in hell. Um, and I want to live a life that's honoring to him. So does that yeah. answer your question? Big time, yeah. Yeah, you, you. yeah, you get into the kingdom of God through Christ's righteousness. Yeah, good question, Michael. That's the most important question you could ask. <laughs> it is. How do I get right with God? Repentance and faith, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, through repentance and faith. And you know, re- you know repentance, the term repentance? Um. Kind of like if you repent, like repent your sins. Yeah. I guess I can't define it. Yeah. So repent means to like turn. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Okay. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ go hand in hand. Repent means to turn away from your sin. If I'm turning away from my sin, this former life that I used to live, what am I turning to? I'm turning towards Christ in faith. So repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. Um, If I were to come up and hit you in the leg and say, I'm sorry, and hit you in the leg and say, I'm sorry, hit you in the leg and say, I'm sorry, am I really sorry? No, if I was truly sorry, I would stop doing it. So that's what repentance is. It's, I, I can't live this way. It's offensive to God. This is why Christ died on the cross, was because of these sins that I'm committing. I'm turning away from those things, and I'm now following after Christ. So repentance and faith go hand in hand, okay? Anything else? Any other comments? Yeah. 
Remind me of your name, brother. Daniel. So Michael and Daniel, right? Michael Daniel. or David and Daniel. Michael, David, Daniel. Um, so back on the thing where it's like, um, what was it? It's, um, don't start arguments. Mm-hmm. And um, but like you know how those verses that are talking about um, like call out the false teachers, call out the um, the people who are doing wrong in the church, and also in just like some cases when your viewpoints clash with other people's viewpoints, and when you say what you believe, that kind of starts tensions. Mm-hmm. Um, is that sort of like causing arguments, or or is that like a justifiable cause for mm-hmm. arguments? Yeah, good question, Daniel. So <clears throat> here's what I would say. Mm-hmm. When we are commanded to call out false teachers, or we are, I mean, we're called to call the world to repent, Kind of this gospel message is offensive to a lot of people. When I say that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, you can't get to heaven through anywhere else but Christ. Islam's not going to get you to heaven. Uh, Hinduism isn't going to get you to heaven. Uh, Buddhist isn't going to get you to heaven. That's offensive to people, right? But it's the truth. And whose truth is it? God is the author of truth. So I'm sharing the truth of God with you. Now, we need to make sure we're doing it in a loving way. We're doing it in a kind way. That we're not intentionally trying to be, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I want to speak to you in love. Not saying, like, you're an idiot for doing what you're doing. And blah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that. But I'm sharing the truth of God. And if you get upset and a quarrel starts, where's the quarrel really between? Is it between me and you? Or is it between you and God? You don't like the truth that God reveals in his word. So as far as it depends upon me, I I don't want to do anything that's intentionally going to make you mad at me by saying things hatefully and maliciously and being angry and being up in your face. I don't want to do that. But I am going to share the word of God to you, the truth of God to you. I want to do so in a loving way. And if that starts a rift between me and you, it's really not a rift between me and you. It's a rift between you and God. Does that make sense? Yeah.